Welcome to episode four, The Stages of Change. This is the fourth episode of the podcast series, Raising Voices, where we are committed to advocating for this vulnerable population. This podcast is brought to you by the Association of Children's Residential and Community Services. I'm Molly O'Neill, and I'll be moderating this conversation today. Before we jump in, a note on our content. We'll be talking about youth at risk of commercial sexual exploitation. In this episode, we'll talk about the stages of change and how they correlate with CSEC. If you or someone you know is being trafficked or need resources, please call the National Human Trafficking Hotline at 888-373-7888 or the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children at 800-843-5678. Hi, everyone. Welcome to our podcast. My name is Gina Peksoboleski, and I'm Vice President of Permanency at Sycamores. We're a large nonprofit in Los Angeles, um, providing a continuum of prevention and intensive services for youth and families. And I oversee our residential and foster family services, along with some outpatient services as well. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist. Um, My career right now focuses on program development, and I've been working with victims of trauma and abuse for many years, um, including commercial sexual exploitation. I've done um, some trainings and webinars and uh, program development on that. Thank you, Gina and Nicole. And I'm Nicole. I'm a clinical psychologist and have been able to do work with Gina for many years. We were able to collaborate in doing some stuff in residential and even since stepping away from residential of getting to do a lot of this work. So really, really grateful to still be connected to residential. And over the past few years, I've got to do a lot of training and consultation with organizations, both in regards to trauma-informed programming, as well as issues related to trafficking. So excited to be here today. Thank you both. We'll get right into it. The first question we have um, today is, what are the stages of change and how does it apply to CSAC? So the stages of change, that's that's a very important concept um, that I hope people are, are learning. You know, there hasn't been a whole lot of opportunity. We're hoping that will change and that will it will be part of training mandates across the country, but it's a, it's not a new concept. Um, there's five stages of change. Um, and it's important to know these stages because it's normal and expected that sexually exploited youth are in one of these stages at any time. So these stages inform a, a client's readiness to change, just like other treatment, treatment issues, such as addiction change occurs at an individualized pace and it's driven by specific stages. So there are five different stages. First stage is pre-contemplation. And that really means that there's no awareness really of a need to change. A client maybe isn't willing to talk about the problem behavior. Um, And our goal with this stage is to consider the need to change, really just sort of entertaining that notion. Then we have contemplation where a client or youth will consider the change. And at that point, they're weighing the pros and cons of changing versus not changing. And at this stage, we really want to get them to commit to change, any change, even small change. Then there's preparation where a youth will continue to strengthen commitment to the change. And they're starting to create a plan. And that's taking into account relapse prevention. And again, 
every stage has a goal. The goal with the stage is the creation of a plan. Then we have action where the plan is being put into action and we're adjusting that plan as needed. We're talking a whole lot about the plan um, with the goal of that plan being successfully implemented. Then there's recycling. Some may call it relapse or return. Um, and that's really the intersection of re where re-victimization meets lapse and, and relapse. So we know that anyone under the age of 18 engaging um, in this behavior is considered a victim. Um, and we know that lapses, it, it encourages the old behavior momentarily. There will usually be a stage of recycling return or, re, or relapse. Um, a relapse is really fully going back to the old behavior and a lapse is engaging in the old behavior momentarily. I think that's really important to distinguish. Um, I'm going to have Nicole talk more about that. As we think about these stages, it sounds lovely, and it would be lovely if folks progressed just as Gina described it, minus relapse or the recycling process, but we also know that is not always the case, and so that's where we expect there to be bumps in the road, folks to get stuck from time to time, take a sidestep or whatnot, and so we should really be making sure we're planning for that that process of recycling, of going back to another stage. Also, as we start to work with our youth and young adults who've been exploited, not everyone is going to start where Gina started us talking about with pre-contemplation. We might have a kid who has already made commitments to exit exploitation, who may have been out for a while, but it's been in their past. And so it's important that as we start working with our youth, that we really try to discern where are they at now? And how can I focus on helping them get to that next stage? That becomes our goal, not how do I help them get to safety, stability, thriving in school, not running away, et cetera. Those are going to be our long-term goals that I think we could all agree upon. But when we start to break it down step by step, it becomes so much more tangible, not only in terms of what we should be expecting of the youth, what I should be expecting of myself as a service provider, what my organization should be expecting, et cetera. It just really helps us frame what it is we are doing. Awesome, thank you. We'll move on to the next question. Why is it important that treatment providers understand and apply the stages of change? So understanding these, sta these stages helps us plan treatment that is realistic, and thoughtful and successful. So we may expect more from a youth than they can measure up to, which can be damaging. So for example, if a youth is pre-contemplative, right? They're not aware of a need to change. They're really not even talking about the issue. They're just doing their thing. They're not acknowledging an issue. So if our treatment plan is to set up, is to set up an action phase for a youth, or we're expecting action, which is, you know, far in the future for them, the youth won't be successful and the treatment will be considered a failure. So that's not healthy for a youth staff or an organization. Unfortunately, what we see is, you know, we're limited on, on the treatment that we can give youth. And it's usually related to contractual limitations, usually related to money. Um, and then sometimes those who are funding um, and deciding about our programs aren't always educated um, on concepts like the stages of change so that, that these program expectations are being written um, for youth um, 
who aren't where they need to be according to these programs. So, so I think it's important um, that we look at that in terms of what we're expecting of these youth. It's really not healthy for the youth staff or an organization to be expecting more than, than a youth um, is ready for. Also, as we start to think here about our youth who are being exploited, one of the reasons it's important here for us to consider the stages of change is even thinking about it organizationally to make sure that as I look at the youth I'm working with and what stage or stages they are in, of really making sure programmatically that's how my organization is designed. And it's designed to work with youth in all stages if that's the population I'm working with. Too often from an organizational perspective, our organizations are designed to work with kids who are in action, who are, you know, doing what they're supposed to. They're following their plans. They're safe. They're stable, etc. But that be there becomes tension when that isn't the population we are working with. So it becomes really important that we take that into consideration. Also, as we think about life does not go as smoothly as we think it will or want it to. And so as Gina mentioned, many times youth might find themselves returning to exploitation. And so when we understand this process of recycling, as we understand the stages of change, it really helps us reframe how we see those returns to exploitation in terms of helping us develop more empathy and understanding so that we really can look as a team to figure out, okay, what what didn't, what were needs that we didn't identify? What were some things that we could do differently? What are some things the kid is learning from this, et cetera? And when we are judging and stigmatizing somebody for returning to the commercial sex industry, it makes it much harder to learn from those missteps along the way. Great, thank you. The next question is how might the stages of change affect treatment decisions and plans? Well, you know, we, we referenced that somewhat in that um, it's important that treatment is aligned with, with the stage a youth is in. Um, and I, I can't highlight enough um, what we've previously said, just that the treatment is set up um, appropriately and that um, the appropriate time is given um, to really honor that pre-contemplative and that contemplative stage, because we know most youth admitted into congregate care um, or home-like settings um, who are being treated for this issue are generally in, I see a lot more pre-contemplative, um, some contemplative, very few youth are in action, maybe some are preparing, um, but it's important that we're, we're setting up treatment to align with the right stage um, so that that we're not setting up the youth for failure. And I think that's what we can inherently do as a system. Um, and, it, and it can sometimes reinforce our, our sort of underlying belief or maybe even a bias that treatment is not successful with this population because we're not setting up the right program expectations. So I think really, really wanna highlight that, especially um, for stakeholders and decision makers for executive level, anyone who really has that um, ability to drive the system that that we're really setting up the right system according to the right stage of change. Also, as we think about the stages of change and one leaving the commercial sex industry, 
it's not one thing somebody is having to do. And this becomes a mistake we oftentimes make as providers is looking at all of these behaviors and saying, this kid is in the preparation stage, as an example. When in reality, looking at all the things one must do to leave the commercial sex industry, it is a handful of things they are needing to do. And so what becomes more helpful is for us to really think about what are those individual behaviors somebody might do, because they might be at different places with different things. So for example, somebody might be more willing, say, to go to therapy. So they might be in action when it comes to going to therapy. They might not be as willing to be meeting with their psychiatrist. You know, they might be in that contemplative stage as to whether or not they are still wanting to maintain contact with friends from the life, et cetera. So it becomes helpful that we look at each behavior individually rather than clump them together. And I think that becomes one of those big missteps along the way is when we try and clump it together and try and put that into plans and whatnot, we're, we're missing many of those kind of more finite issues the youth is experiencing. I think that's a really important um, point. Nicole, um, that individualized treatment is so key. Um, I think we we build programs based on um, what we think a group of people need when that's just so important to honor the individual complexities and also look at the intersection of different needs and issues as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you. And I think this kind of takes us to the next question. What are the barriers treatment providers may be facing regarding this topic? You know, I think we've touched on some of this already. Um, you know, providers, organizations, and stakeholders are likely not informed about the stages of change. And we know that. We just don't see trainings out there. Um, I'm sure that there are some. um, We've provided some trainings on the topic in California. Um, But this affects expectations. And like we've touched on before, um, funding opportunities. So I think, you know, most of youth that that are admitted into congregate care facilities have only about six months um, in residential care. And we expect so much during this time. We expect a complete metamorphosis, um, which is unrealistic. And we, we talk about how unrealistic it is, but we don't change anything about it. Um, so a youth is admitted pre-contemplative or contemplative they're not meeting the predetermined goals that are required by the stakeholder. They're not ready to, to receive an evidence-based practice. They're not ready to do trauma work. Um, we're really looking at being able to just acknowledge there's an issue and a need to change, working at a very basic level. Um, but a stakeholder may, may choose not to fund this work. Um, and then programming um, suffers, treatment plans suffer, creates challenges for an organization and can be harmful for, for a youth. So it's critical as an industry that we make sure we have the right trainings in place, stages of change. Um, I know on the California side um, has been, um, there, have, there haven't been any mandates or requirements, but we have seen it um, on the menu of training um, available to providers. Um, but that until that's incorporated um, and that there's an understanding, a collective system understanding of this concept, there's going to be uh, challenges um, along the way. So for those who are providing treatment, you know, um, and if you have the ability to build treatment programming within your organization and you're not relying on outside stakeholders, um, it's critical that you look at this topic Um 
and incorporated into your required trainings. And to add to what Gina's sharing, not only as we think about training, which is crucial, that's a wonderful first step. One of those challenges I have seen has been the implementation thereafter. This could be a lot of content that makes sense in the moment, but it easily gets lost in, you know, it gets lost in everything else we're trying to do, all the other, you know, initiatives we have, all the other countless things we need to review with youth and in team meetings, et cetera. And so it becomes important not only that organizations are trained on the stages of change, but really think about the implementation. How are we implementing it? How are we talking about it? How does the language, you know, in terms of the stages, in terms of the goals for the respective stages, the barriers, et cetera, how is that becoming common language within our organizations? Thank you. The next question, are there any recommended templates or resources to consider incorporating stages of change into your practice? You know, we've we've developed a readiness to change screener. Um, Nicole did a lot of work on this early on several years ago, and I know that it's been um, adopted by some organizations, gives us um, a good idea of where youth is, and it's based on um, integrated information from a variety of sources, usually the child and family team, the clinician and the family. Um, and it shows us where, what stage a youth may be at based on um, interactions with them, self-reports and observation of their behaviors. There's not many resources out there. Um, and I know, like we said before, a basic training is still being developed and implemented. I know Nicole can comment a little bit more on what she's seen yeah, when it comes to some of those screeners and whatnot that are out there, I would say that's definitely a gap where there there aren't too many more formalized ones that at least that I'm that I'm aware of. And so that, that definitely becomes a challenge. One of those things as well is as we think about the the time and the investment here of learning about the stages of change in relation to kids who are exploited. I think one of the benefits of, of learning about the stages of change and even doing things like funding, you know, funding the research and, and the time to put together a, a formalized screener, et cetera, is that so much of what we talk about with the stages of change is also relatable to kids engaging in other problematic behaviors and whatnot. So it's definitely stuff that we could apply system-wide within our organizations. But unfortunately, that is definitely a gap. Yeah, so I know you guys did just touch on this a little bit, but are there any current gaps, needs, or calls to action regarding this topic? Yeah, there, there's quite a few. Um, and I, I think we're hopeful that the system is, is going to be able to provide a level of support that's needed and aligned with, with the reality of what these kids need. So again, we talked about there needs to be guidelines and basic standards set up in the treatment and advocacy system. Um, and there should be training requirements um, and treatment program design. So I think ultimately what we would love to see is inclusion in regulations and best practice um, legislation even on what needs to be provided to youth. It's like we're just sort of spinning our wheels. I think we're starting to get it slowly but surely, um, but requirements, um, regulations, um, and um, I want to say Items that can be monitored 
um, by our stakeholders for um, inclusion and effectiveness, I think would, would get us where we need to go. And even on a larger scale, when it comes to some of those, some of those gaps, just in terms of trafficking, this is where we have so many gaps when it comes to even just looking at all children who are exploited because we aren't there yet in terms of looking at boys, in terms of looking at our LGBTQ youth, in terms of looking even at certain populations of our girls who are exploited as we think about culture and how we see a disproportionate number of kids of color who are exploited and how are we providing culturally informed services based on the stages of change. So there are many, many gaps um, for us as a whole when it comes to trafficking, let alone specifically with this issue. Thank you. Are there any key issues or considerations residential or community treatment providers should be aware of as they move forward in implementing a better understanding of the stages of change? So it's important um, to remember that treatment happens at a youth's own pace. If, if any of us have ever been in treatment, we know that things can't be forced, treatment for whatever issue, um, things can't be forced, um, treatment timelines and objectives should be developed based on what stage of change a youth is in, we've talked extensively about that. Um, and it's really not beneficial, it's really impossible to rush treatment, medicate it or, or box it into something that it's not. Um, and I think that, again, like we touched on before, um, being able to consult with the right individuals um, and get the right state and county guidance on how to implement your program, um, a best practice list of standards, guidelines um, could be instrumental toward this end. Mm -hmm. We're not there yet, but hopefully we're on our way. Yeah, the other thing is, as we think about just general programming in residential, when it comes to doing groups or whatnot, this is where the better we understand the stages of change, the better services we provide. For example, if I have a group on whatever topic it might be, even if it's a process group on trafficking, I'm not just saying you're being trafficked, therefore you go to this trafficking group. When I understand the stages of change, it helps me figure out, okay, well, this, this group of kids, they're earlier on, they're in the pre contemplated contemplative stage. Let me do some programming that's kind of unique for them given where they're at. And let me do some programming for those kids who are further along, who might be in that preparation action stage. We're going to do some different groups or programming for them. So it really does help us individualize services to meet clients where they're at programmatically and individually when we understand the stages of change model. Thank you. So to close out, the last question we have is where can anyone turn for more information on this topic? So that's a really good question. I think it's important that people are aware of the resources that, that are being built, but we do have some out there um, and ready for review. So the ACRC website, togetherthevoice.org, provides some really great information across a variety of topics related to CSEC and have um, a stages of change screener posted as well. Um, it is a members only um, access. So um, we do allow people to drop in and view. And again, always encouraging membership into the ACRC if you're doing congregate care or clinical work related to this topic. Um, but we can um, 
have you have access to some resources if you need them. Also, Polaris.org and Shared Hope International are awesome resources. Check in with your county, um, city, and state as well on their websites. Um, oftentimes, there are a menu of services and stages of change may be there or, or something or some reference, um, at least access the other trainings and resources related to CSEC on those websites too. Talk to other providers, work with your contracted mental health agency, um, and attend as many trainings as you can. Um, advocate for this, join us in that effort, um, and I think we're headed in the right direction. Nicole, anything that... that I'm missing. I think Gina nailed it. Awesome. Thank you both for this conversation today. And we'll be back soon with another episode. For more information and to learn more, go to togetherthevoice.org. That's togetherthevoice.org.